Thanks for joining us on the American Masters podcast, where we pull never-before-heard interviews off the shelf and onto the airwaves. I'm your host, Michael Cantor, executive producer of the long-running PBS documentary series, American Masters. In this episode, we listen to a conversation between legendary folk singer-songwriter Joan Baez and fellow musician and collaborator Dar Williams. Baez has performed for over half a century and is widely known for decades of social and political activism. At 22 years old, she led the crowd in the singing of the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome, at Martin Luther King's 1963 March on Washington. And nearly 50 years later, she performed the song in 2010 for President Obama at a White House celebration. Dar Williams, now a veteran folk musician for a younger generation, is seen as a natural torchbearer to Baez in the American tradition of protest music. In this exclusive interview outtake, originally recorded for American Masters' Joan Baez, How Sweet the Sound, Baez and Williams recall their experiences touring with each other on the road. I want to ask Miss Daw what she felt about our co-mentoring little trip. <laughs> Um, I, let's see, I, I think it was a very vivid time of my life because it was the, you know, launch into to, to everything that, that I have now. And, and it was, um, I remember getting the news that uh, you wanted me to sing with you on this album where other people were singing with you, but it was the Indo Girls and Mary Chapin Carpenter and Janice Ian and then Little Old Me. And, and I think, you know, what my manager said was, Joan is interested in, in you as a person who doesn't have this, you know, radio thing going yet, or you know, you're starting out, but you're working really hard, and you're and you're a songwriter who's who believes in the power of songs. And, and I said, well, I got that from her. <laughs> so uh, I uh, so I remember hearing that you were going to take this this risk with me, and then I tried to tamp it all down when I went to the bottom line and, and met you, and I said something like, I'm just going to try to pretend that you're not who you are and that this isn't really happening so that we could just get some work done. <laughs> you said something like, well, good. <laughs> and <laughs> we got to work and we sang that night on stage. And, uh, and then my manager, who was really into this, you know, don't get a big head thing, said, they're interested in having you come to Europe with them, uh, Joan and her, her gang. And you <laughs> said, oh, that's nice. And I said, okay, well, that's going to be some good work. Breathe. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> and, you know, with my heart racing. And then you took <laughs> me to Europe and then the United States. I mean, so many people who see me now say that that was the first concert. I mean, so many people now say that those were the first times that they saw me. And it's 15, no, 12 years later yeah. now. Yeah. So that was a huge deal. And also, you know, how you were on tour, how gracious you were and how humane you were on the bus. You know, none of this diva stuff influenced, you know, my, my whole, like, keeping down the diva quotient, which turned out, I think, to be a good way to be a professional. Useful. Yeah. yeah. So, so that was, uh, you know, I don't really know. You can get, you can believe your own press in such a way that people just don't want to work with you anymore because they don't. And so I, uh, but I saw the way you, interactive, you know, took everybody in and found a place for them and helped them find a place for themselves, including me. So, um, 
so that was actually as much part of the the big picture as as uh, all of the venues and things that we did together. Well, you were lovely. You were wonderful to work with, and our relationship on stage was one of teasing each other, basically. Mm -hmm. You'd call me the matriarch, and I'd call you young whippersnapper. Right. In your case, <laughs> whippersnapper. Right. <laughs> Remember when you made me... See, I shave my armpits <laughs> to this day. You do? Oh, good. Yeah. No lapses. <laughs> no, 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 I'm... I'm I, you know, I don't think I ever... You know, there was a principle at work with not shaving my armpits, but I don't <laughs> think that was... And But you, uh, you made me uh, shave my armpits with... Uh, Richard Schindel's razor <laughs> at the Chicago Symphony, and then you announced to a sold-out audience at the Chicago Symphony that I'd uh, shave my armpits, and then you made me show them. So. Were they delighted? Yeah, of course. Of course they, they are. <laughs> Any irregularity like that. <laughs> so, actually, you know, when when uh, journalists when journalists said, "What did you learn from Joan Baez?" I would say, I, I, before this was actually this is when I still hadn't succumbed <laughs> to the razor, but. They would say, you know, traveling with Joan Baez, you must have learned a great deal. And I said, yeah, she's such a good shopper. And she taught me all of the, the, the things that you can travel with, travel really well, and also that look good on stage. And they would just sit there with their pens poised. But waiting for the big one. <laughs> yeah, huh? they didn't. And I said, really? And she's really funny. And it really teaches me how to be on the road. You know, she just makes it, you know, a really fun beautiful experience being on the road and and she has a standard but she's also very flexible and and uh they still wouldn't write anything and i'd say <laughs> and of course she's been a very influential activist and like okay well, there we are tainted <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then they'd start i say you know vaclav havel said that that her concert was one of the reasons that the revolution was nonviolent. Uh, and they when, said huh no no they, no, they, <laughs> they did they, they wrote that one down and, i thought and, maybe uh, they wouldn't know who he was so. <laughs> <laughs> and of course you didn't tell me that story the tour manager told us that story but then you told us the story about how there was a poet and they said, you know, whatever you do, as you oh, play yeah. here in Czechoslovakia, all locked down and not wanting this revolution, whatever you do, don't have this dissident poet up on stage. And I remember when you told the story, you, were, you said, so, of course, we had him on the stage. Mm -hmm. And they cut the electricity. And so everybody just turned on, I guess, their flashlights and their lighters. And he spoke. It was, it was great. Yeah, it was. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, when they finally let the power of the revolution happened. It was when it started, for sure. I mean, actually, Havel would say it was the last drop mm -hmm. in, the, in the glass before it spilled over. Um, and I was planning up in, in our room, up in my hotel room with Havel, my just had met, so how are we gonna make mischief? We call it mischief. <laughs> and, and so we first of all started, he said a whole bunch of words that I could do syllables to if I had something in my ear and I had the tape recorder here. Mm. And they were saying something basic about Charter 77. And then I would say in Czech and my friend Václav Havel, the house went crazy because mm. he's not supposed to be there. And then a little later I said, oh yes, I'm going to take a little break. And I believe you have a singer here named Ivan Hoffman. <laughs> And the audience didn't even know what to do. They didn't believe it. He hadn't sung anywhere for four years. And so he came up on a stage. It took forever setting up. He was this gaunt, very serious 
guy he isn't actually, it turns out, but he was so knocked out with that day and he got out his guitar and he sang something ferociously. For, I mean, it was maybe two verses. I was astounded mm. before they cut their microphone and then he just beamed, you know, he had done it. And then the audience understood and they went crazy again. Mm. So unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that, that moment where you say, you know what, why not? <laughs> why not just let this happen? Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, that was, that was a powerful, that, that it was funny because I was, you know, when, when you and I traveled together, we were on the bus and you brought me up to the front and you said, let me tell you a little bit about myself. I mean, it was that kind of, you know, let me, I'll give you the sort of the crash course on, on who I am so you know who you're traveling with. I mean, it was that kind of, because uh, you were known. Who did I say I was? <laughs> you said you were a person who had done a lot of therapy. Because <laughs> <laughs> I know you would relate. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, because I, I was always talking about how I was in therapy, so you must have known. But, you know, you said, you said, you know, you had done so much and then you had worked through so much and that that was a big part of who who you were, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that it, you were still integrating all of this, you know, that you had, of course, been a, such a, a... Neurotic twit. And no, I don't think you called <laughs> it. I do, I do remember when you would see these young, these sort of 20-somethings starting out who were thrust into the spotlight early on, and you would look at them and say, oh, I, I can see what she's, what she's going through. I mean, you had, you know, I, it sort of, maybe you did, maybe you went through therapy to help yourself because I think you had a lot of wisdom about other people. You recognized that these young people who had been thrust in the spotlight really early and who were expected to shoulder it mm -hmm. as if they'd been doing it for a long time and it was like a yoke on their shoulders. And, and uh, there were some, there were some people I know who met you like my sister who, you know, said, I'm not worthy. <laughs> and you were really great about that. You didn't, you, didn't, you said, oh, thank you. And, and, and didn't make her walk away saying, oh. Why did I do that? <laughs> and then, but then there were some guys who would come at you who were just, you know, needing more from you than, than they should have. And I would just see you kind of tilt your head and, and know exactly what that was and sort of cut off the energy and excuse yourself. Brain. And it was, you know, so, so you had a lot of wisdom, but you described yourself as a person who was still really interested in what was going on inside. And, and, uh, and I could tell, actually. I think you ought to tell about when you banged your head on the way to the concert. <laughs> a wonderful story. Well, I'm short. And so usually people look when there's, you know, at the tops of doors, but this one was Where it really says, low. Be careful, low. Yeah, yeah, don't hit your head on this piece of concrete. <laughs> so I, so I, uh, yeah, so I hit my head so hard. And then during my set or your set, did we ask if there was a doctor in well, the house? Well, before you were so terrified, I found you weeping in your room. Oh, so, yeah. And this big bulge on your forehead. <laughs> I said, What is it? She said, My head. But your fear was that I would fire you. Oh. She said, She's going to do something that I was going to be upset or whatever. I said, dar. Oh. Don't be a dope. And then what, put something on your head? Or? Right. I, maybe I thought I'd lobotomize myself. <laughs> but, you know, I, I was nervous all the time. And then finally, I said something like, are you mad at me? And you, I think it was during sort of like you were taking a break from one song. I mean, it was like this little window of time. And you just, but you stopped and you said, have I ever been mad at you? Because <laughs> <laughs> I kept on saying those kind of yeah. neurotic things like, 
have I disappointed you, <laughs> Queenie? And, uh, <laughs> and finally you said, have I ever been mad at you? <laughs> and you know, there I was in my long skirt, my prim little shirt with my severe haircut. <laughs> No, no, she really, we really get along. So, uh, yeah, no, I think I was nervous about that. Uh, I was, well, I remember just one day walking around some like parking lot of a hotel thinking, this is like a dream. And, and yet I know it's like a dream right now. It's not even one of those things where I'll take the pictures in my head and suddenly someday realize how incredible that was. I know it right now. I mean, I'd never, been in that kind of spotlight before, and yet look what, you know, look what you all did for me, you know, getting me up on a tour bus and giving me the lay of the land and the best bunk and, and uh, these wonderful stages where you would, one of the first places we performed was um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, where you sang Amazing Grace, and on the third verse, they lit up the lights behind the stained glass windows so that the whole audience was sort of bathed in this, reverent light and and uh i just thought wow I, <laughs> this is this is really too good i mean Aww. this is this is uh this is a dream so it was it was a very important i mean i remember i think i remember every single thing about that that tour and you were a delight i mean not everybody is <laughs> you were not low maintenance you were no maintenance <laughs> which is wonderful and on top of that you're fun to hang out with i remember actually in terms of no maintenance, mm -hmm. I had these little hobo shoes that uh, you know that you know laced up and were all kind of scuffy, and, and I loved them and I thought they were very chic. And uh, and I went to your room one night with the rest of the band. And we were all there like I'm awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like Julie Andrews and all of this. <laughs> and and uh, so we were all hanging out, and then we all left. And I went back to my room and realized I'd left my shoes there and. Uh, ah, I'll deal with that later. And the next morning I woke up and there were my shoes right in front of my door with a little note that <laughs> said, Miss Dar, you need to go shopping. <laughs> Otherwise, you're perfect. La Baez. <laughs> <laughs> and you were right. They were awful. It was, a, it was worse than Charlie Chaplin. So well, it's those stages coming out of what we were and what you think you're supposed to be and what image you are and at least for me anyway, and then the steps out of that, that you think you're betraying something, you're betraying your feet or whatever, and then little by little, it just shifts, right. and you get more comfortable in a different way. Yeah, and that was, you know, I've seen a lot of folk singers talking the talk for so long, and walking it, but very uncomfortably, <laughs> so that after a while, they're just kind of falling apart, and they're unhappy, and it's just they're all, you know, their anger is just coming out, <laughs> blurting out the sides. And, and early on, you kind of gave me this quality of life talk, it you know. It's okay like, to wear a dress that, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't go down past the ground. <laughs> and it's okay to, you know, be feminine. And it's okay to love beautiful things. And it's okay to care about clothes and stuff. I mean, I think I was prepared to sort of transcend the material world for the sake of the cause, whatever that big C cause was. And and there you were, you know, laughing and shopping. Yeah. <laughs> and, and eating meat. And eating meat. <laughs> and uh, there was that. But there and there was also, you know, don't deal with people who mess with you. Mm -hmm. There was a kind of like, you know, 
when they are, and uh, and you can have fun and you can be social and talk to people and not just close the door all the time. But but you know when people are are messing with your your scene, you can respect your scene enough to to know that at least. And that was another thing, you know, just keeping a little for myself. I like being generous. You're very generous, and and yet somehow you know you would. I feel like you positioned things in a way that it didn't feel like you were giving too much, mm-hmm. and that that was important to the whole to the whole progress of things. Even though you'd done so much, and that would come up here and there in idle conversations, you know, the Center for Nonviolent Studies and things like that, <laughs> which is great. Those folks are still <laughs> they're still at it, going strong. Yep, yeah. in Santa Cruz. So where are we? Music. Oh, what was that? <laughs> Gorsh. <laughs> You? Uh, okay. Or I'm going to say about you first. Just Either way. Genuine, gifted, young, that's, you know, that's lucky for me. And near music was something, a lot of it, that I could sing. And I think, as opposed to some young singers, I understood yours more, although I gave a whole spiel on it one time about a song you'd written. You said that was a really nice speech, but it has nothing to do with what my song meant. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> I remember it was the song, uh, If I Wrote You. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, it was... Uh, <laughs> that that's fun. Well, I was very pleased with what you said about it. I was pleased that it could be read one way, and, and, uh, and um, it, was, uh, it was just written... Differently. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, I didn't have a clue. But it all seemed to make sense to me. I, you know, I put it in some kind of context, context and it all made sense to me. So I yeah. told the whole audience what it was about. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, they thought that was great. It wasn't until mm, after the concert oh, or good. whenever. <laughs> after the concert. Yeah. Good. I probably nodded my head vigorously in front of the audience. <laughs> but uh, that was... Uh, yeah, no, the song If I Wrote You was written for, um, I, I, I just, in my mind, you know, I'd encounter a lot of people with various substance abuse problems who, and then there would be couples, you know, which was kind of ideal for the substance abuse. And then this was a song about one person pulling away and, and looking back at another person saying, don't take it personally, I didn't do this to make you feel left behind. I just need to go forward because the world needs, you know, what I, the world is falling apart, I'm falling apart, I decided to show up and... And I still love you. So, so I think your uh, interpretation was probably c- very close to that. Well, what's curious is that it doesn't really matter. You know? Well, and that's what I thought. Whatever yeah. the song is, to me, it was singable and more than singable. I mean, aside from being beautiful, which I was explaining to somebody, a song can be really beautiful, but I can't do it. It doesn't match me. Mm-hmm. But more of your songs matched me than I think anybody else I ever took out there. So... Um, that's just to say, <laughs> that's where I, that's what the people say. Oh, how lovely you mentored all these people. First of all, I don't like nouns and <laughs> verbs screwed up like that, but then he always a mentor to you. And I say, if you don't co-mentor, then it's a fake. And listening to you now makes it very clear to me anyway, how we're co-mentoring, what you gave me and what I, I had to offer to you. That was very much the spirit of our, our time together, which was, you know, a huge blessing. I, I can imagine it would have probably been very different with other people. But um, I was, uh, you know, we grew up listening to your music, but in a very important way. Like, my, my parents, they're really into sort of saying, like, we garden, 
we recycle, we believe in these kinds of politics, we watch this kind of public television, and we listen to this music, and these are all really important things to do. And, you know, there were the three Williams sisters, you know, <laughs> with our short hair, but looking at you with your beautiful long hair and the songbook or on the, the on the 33s, you know, on the record covers, and we were just pining to be just like you. And uh, and then um, and then when I was 16, I really started to listen to the lyrics, and I said, "Wow, this is this is sung and written as if music really does influence the way the world goes. Even the stuff that's about." life and death, mm. you know, just how we look at life, how we look at death, which doesn't have anything to do with any campaigns, mm. was sung in this way, like, this is really important. This is the stuff we look at, and we're not selling anything. Mm. And there in the 80s, it was so, you could, I can hear it now as a songwriter. You hear, I hear sometimes when my friends are kind of going for the brass ring, <laughs> mm -hmm. and I hear that commerce in their writing, you know, just this kind of sell it. And here was music that was saying, this is important because this is our identity. You know, these are the Appalachian Mountains that, you know, that we're singing about, or my, the Blue Ridge Mountains. And, uh, the, and even that, that album, you know, you brought in the Nashville musicians and you're just bringing out this important part of our identity that had nothing to do with, you know, guns or celluloid or anything. And it was, and it was self-aware, I thought, of that. This, this is what we do, it's extremely important. And then when I heard it at 16 and I heard the lyrics and what you were communicating, there was this part of me that said, uh, this, is, this is all I wanna do. And another part of me said, sit down, you can't do that. <laughs> so, uh, so I went in some other directions, but, but. How long, how long uh, till you, you know, accepted yourself? <laughs> well, I, I played in a, um, I wrote a few songs along the way, and then finally, um, when I was uh, 22, I moved to Boston and um, wanted to work in the theater, and the theater scene was so sort of predatory and awful, but the music scene mm -hmm. at all of the places that you played mm -hmm. uh, early on was thriving because mm -hmm. that it was all, all of those things that, that really just had the love of music and the way it pulled the community together were still there. So Passim was there. There was something called the Nameless Coffee House. I played at the Naked City Coffee mm -hmm. House that was sort of a spin out of, of something else. And, and if you paid $2 and signed your name there, you know, on the list, at one o'clock in the morning you could play two songs and really find out how it went over because there would be a whole audience of four people <laughs> to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, and, so I just, I wanted to be a playwright. I put that all aside and I said, you know, actually there's something really wonderful and calligraphic about uh, telling a story with fewer strokes. And, and I love that. It's harder, but I love that. And, um, and I'll stay here for a while with all of these people who, I don't know if you encountered that as you were starting out, people who told me that maybe I should get another guitar, maybe I shouldn't sing in falsetto, I should wear different shoes, I should maybe quit. <laughs> Just a, That's helpful. A yeah. league of peers, yeah, well, anyway, dudes. Yeah. But <laughs> it all worked out. I didn't have any of that because whatever happened just happened and it happened very quickly. Mm. But I, I guess music-wise, it's just so obvious what we have and did together. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's a great deal to talk about 
Um, we talk about our time on stage, we talk about our time off stage, but you can see by how they, this chat has gone so far that music is certainly not the focal point of our relationship. Right. Even though I am borrowing my guitar back for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody sent you a card, and he was so lovely. It was like a 14 or 15-year-old said, I love you, and I love all your albums, and I, I love your voice, and I just have one question. What was going on on that cover of one of your albums? And, and we saw the visual, and <laughs> he said, did you lose a bet? And it was... <laughs> And I don't remember which one it was, but you were in some aviator suit, yeah. I think. And, uh, and I think the tour manager turned to you and said, well, Joan, did you lose a bet? And you said, hmm, quaaludes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can say it. And that's the only thing that could explain that. <laughs> but it was that, you know, it was, uh, you know, if there was an honest moment, you know, I just knew you as, as you know, eating your apples and walking around barefoot in organic gardens of California. And, and, and here you were, you know, just laying it out. But you were very, very funny. There was one 19-year-old boy who, uh, who had a big crush on me, <laughs> who, who came up on the, the, the tour bus and said, like, the backstage is all ready. We've made it all ready for all of you. And he kept on sort of looking over at me. <laughs> he said, oh, I remember those. <laughs> All the young men who yeah, used yeah, to... Yeah. Actually, I'm not going to go into that that's story. Right. But, but that's a wonderful story. <laughs> the guy in Murray, France? Yeah, there was one guy, yeah. I'm Is sorry about guy? that one, Joan. No, it was wonderful. He was, well, it wasn't for you, as it turned out. Oh, that's all right. right. He, he, I didn't realize that anybody would be looking at anybody, anybody but me. That was so terrific about it. And this guy had presents, and they were always for Dar. And he had this combination of a dar, I don't know, what the, it was French accent? Yeah, he was French. She get, he would get the chocolates for dar, chocolate for dar, chocolates for dar. <laughs> and we think, oh, what about me? Yeah. You know? He but, said that one time he kind of pushed you out of the way. Yes, so, he did. <laughs> chocolates for dar. <laughs> <laughs> you were standing there and he had to kind of, you know, physically brush you aside. <laughs> and that was, yeah. Did I, I smack you. him or did I just? <laughs> Let him go, he had an agenda. So, and you said, but you were very gracious, you know, you said, wow, I've never seen that guy smile before. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I said, Joe, and you said, and he's never waved to me like that before, and I was standing right behind you. <laughs> I, said, I said, Joan, and you know, that was hard. I was, you know, 27 or 28, and I thought, I don't know if I can say this, but, I, you know, the truth is the truth. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, that, that was, I don't remember that sweet guy's name, but it was true, he was very... Uh, He's taken, very taken with you. And then he say. changed. <laughs> <laughs> I remember all the guys uh, dancing in Paris, and all of the, the all of these guys wanting to dance with you, and, and saying, "Where did we dance in Joan Baez? You are the coolest white woman in the <laughs> Western Hemisphere." The thing about the thing about being on the the uh, the bus with you is that that was everything was out in the open and somebody said something about you know Joan Baez well she's a very serious person <laughs> are you kidding <laughs> and you know n because sometimes people I mean you were very funny and it wasn't just like funny in your own world or funny with your friends I mean it was just it was like a real party on the bus and so I said I, I don't know if I'm breaking some rule but she's really not that that serious I wouldn't that wouldn't be my first word I'm her principles are serious, but uh, <laughs> but it was uh, 
it was just it was just all fun and uh, and it wasn't I didn't feel mentored so that was that was a big thing like I kind of felt like my voice was valued so I could kind of prance up and down and do whatever I wanted to do and and uh, so you got to see that <laughs> I did oh I have a Jones story I know the Jones story okay <laughs> um, I actually remember being in your in your kitchen playing you the beginnings of a song I was writing about Daniel and Philip Berrigan. And it was great. I mean, I felt comfortable enough that I sort of sang you these snippets and I said, well, I want to put in this thing, these lines about how um, that, that Philip wrote in his book. He said that when uh, Dan Berrigan went to Vietnam with Howard Zinn and somebody else, they went as sort of a peacekeeping or a witnessing trio. and. And as soon as they arrived, the Americans started to bomb exactly where they were. And there hadn't been bombing for a long time, but as soon as they arrived, suddenly the Americans started bombing. And, um, and what a powerful symbol that was. And you stopped and said, they did that to me. <laughs> you said, they hadn't been bombing for, for a, a long, long time. time. And as soon as I arrived, they started, they started coming on all around us. And it was, huh. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. And there's so, something of a sinister agenda at work, perhaps, in, in at that time. Yeah, it was, uh, and and it was a. Uh, so so you have that in common with other people who went over to witness. Yeah, and uh, luckily we still have you. Thank witnessing. you. Witnessing. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Dar. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher for future episodes, and visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash americanmasters for digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. You can also find American Masters on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, and YouTube. We'll be back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast. Podcast.